join us this month as we talk with architect and historian Alan Hess about the ongoing Pereira in Peril campaign and our work together seeking to landmark Timesmere Square, which from 1935 until just this month was headquarters of the Los Angeles Times. We'll also talk with Alison Brusehoff, director of Rancho Los Cerritos in Bixby Knoll's Long Beach, joined by her colleagues Tessa Cavanaugh, annual fund manager, and Sarah Fitzgerald, historical curator, to learn about their recently launched Open Doors campaign. This campaign aims to raise $6 million over the next three years to increase public access to the historic 1844 Adobe Home and Gardens, present new exhibits, preserve archives, and raise additional support for educational programs that weave history, social sciences, arts, and STEM-focused initiatives for the 6,000-plus students it serves every year. So stay tuned. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La, 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of July 2018. This episode, we'll have interviews with architect and historian Alan Hess. He's going to be talking to us about the Los Angeles Times Historic Cultural Monument application, which is, as we record this and as we publish in a day or two, in process. It is in the middle of it. Our second interview, we are going to interview... Allison Brusehoff. She's director of Rancho Los Amigos in Bixby Knolls in Long Beach. This is the 19th century cattle ranch. We're also going to be talking to Tessa Cavanaugh. She's the annual fund manager for Rancho Los Amigos. And Sarah Fitzgerald. She's the historical curator. They're awesome. We love them. This is going to be a great episode. The theme of this episode are families that have deeply impacted Southern California from the 19th through the 20th century. So Chandler's, LA Times, Bixby's, Rancho Los Cerritos. Bixby's also own the... Uh, so the Bixby's... the Bix, Okay, so the Chandler's are associated with Los Angeles. Bixby's, Long Beach. Uh, the Bixby's owned two different ranchos in Long Beach. They're still totally amazing and intact. We're talking about Rancho Los Cerritos. That's where Allison... That's what Allison is in charge of. We know Allison from her time at Dominguez Rancho in Compton. She used to be the director there. Now she's come over to Rancho Los Cerritos. We adore Allison. She's the best. We've done many interviews about Rancho Los Cerritos with the previous director, Ellen. We're going to put links up. You should listen to them. This is a very, very, very complicated space. And we're only talking about the future in this episode. We're talking about their 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 capital campaign. They're, they're raising money. They have a 25-year plan, and we're super excited. So we'll get into all of that. So, Kim, you are the Pishka Maven. Please. Yes, I am the Pishka Maven. And what that means is that if you dig the podcast or you like what we're doing out there in the world, like trying to landmark the LA Times and creating 
ways for people doing small preservation projects to get a little amplification for what they're doing and find some people who can help them, which is what we do all day long. And you want to contribute a little something to show your appreciation or to help us in our work, we do have a digital tip jar, and we are always so grateful for the contributions from you, our gentle listeners. Um, it's it's a nice thing. It's never obligatory. It's always appreciated. And um, I do like to say, if you put something in the tip jar, we will spend it on gas for road trips and Chili Rano burritos, which we haven't had one of in a while. So I think we're overdue. Thanks for your support. We've been um, we've been we've been picnicking. Remember that's a, that's been a, that's been our theme for 2018. Is we eat, we picnic in the field. It gets we get we get to see more stuff. If we if we stop for lunch, we just like lose all this time, and then we like. Richard, be honest. If we stop for lunch, we get into long conversations with our servers about their lives, which is always super interesting. But then we look outside, and the sun's going down. So we're. Throw something in the pishka. It's great. Okay. All right. We're going to move on. Okay. So, so uh, we're going to move into the closely watched train segment of this podcast episode. Uh, these are things we care about and uh, sort of not by happenstance at all, but because I decided to. Our first closely watched train is also the subject of our first interview, the Los Angeles Times. So. So Kim, I don't even know where no, to no, start. No, I, I, I know I you. You no. always do. So go. No, I, well, I, I, and remember, this is gonna whatever you say is just gonna feed into our, our first interview with Alan. Well, no, I, I just wanted to mention that you know the the prayer and peril campaign that we started with Alan is now come to a lovely boiling point around the uh, Times Mirror Square and the William Pereira uh, corporate headquarters from 1973. And it's just been super interesting because when we started reaching out to Alan, it took a while to connect with him, four years, because he thought no one could possibly raise William Pereira's profile to the point where anyone would care. This man who was once on the cover of Time magazine, Hollywood's idea of an architect, he's just too despised, it's over, forget it, maybe some benevolent corporate owner would save a Pereira building. And we said, Alan, you have to have faith, and he did, and now here we are, People know how to spell Pereira, and they're talking about Pereira. Uh, Curb L.A. is sort of the uh, follow-up of reporting on what was going on with the Cultural Heritage Commission and our nomination to save the entire block of the L.A. Times compound, which is half the subject of this podcast. Uh, they compiled a list of the most endangered buildings in Los Angeles, and I said, Richard, you want to see what's on the list? Look, like half of these are Pereiras. And uh, some of the others were projects we're working on. It's wonderful. I mean, we're not happy that all these Pereiras are most endangered properties. And Kerb also said just something so lovely at the outset of this, um, this list. They said, I quote, Led by groups like the Los Angeles Conservancy, the Art Deco Society of Los Angeles, and Esoturic, LA has a strong community dedicated to historic preservation. And, you know, as a couple of historians who are native Angelinos who love this place and are blessed and fortunate enough to be able to give bus tours on Saturdays in order to support all of this community that work that we do all week long to try to fight for the soul of LA. That's just really a, a lovely bit of recognition. So thank you, Curbed, and hopefully some of those most endangered buildings are not going to go anywhere. That's what we're trying to do, and if nothing else, they won't go down without notice. Pereira matters, 
as do places all across Los Angeles, probably some that you care about and are worried about. So let's get together and save them. That's all I have to say about number one. That's good, Kim. Uh, streetcar. <laughs> um, I'm going to do this one because there's just... there's, there's okay, okay. Can, can, I, can I introduce it, though? Yeah, can, you know what? You're going to say what? You, no, you get... It's yours. Let me no, just... No, no, no. I want the, you to do it. I just have... I have a zinger. And here's my zinger. One day, we will have a closely watched train about the streetcar that will be the last time anyone ever brings up the Broadway streetcar. It'll just go away. Maybe it's this. I, I don't know. Um, so, ju- okay, so, so there's been a new report published by Public Works, I guess, and the engineering firm they've retained to look at the construction of this, um, this, this streetcar, which has 23 stops, but they don't actually know where passengers will disembark. They haven't figured that out. Um, it's going to cost $300 million, and I just don't think this is going to fly. And, and so, uh... Five years ago, for 18 months, we did a series of tours every month called Broadway On My Mind, explaining in minute detail, block by block, how awful uh, the Bringing Back Broadway re-hardscaping of Broadway is in anticipation of what will be a failed um, light rail implementation on Broadway. That's right. They killed a thriving commercial district that had lots of small businesses and lots of people walking around and kind of keeping the street as sane as downtown LA could be. Those people are all gone now. Those businesses have shuttered. Hopefully they've moved on to, you know, Huntington Park or elsewhere. And if you walk down Broadway and have a really crummy experience with a lot of vacancies and a lot of people having a really, really hard time who are kind of scary, thank bringing back Broadway. What a mess. Yeah, so I just um I I just wanna say that uh if if you you actually try and get around downtown and, and think about as a caring empathic individual with a degree in electrical engineering like I do and and you think how could this work better? You say more dash buses. <laughs> and that's what I mean, that's just like but those aren't sexy, and you can't get money from the federal government for dash buses, and you can't take trips to Sweden to see the streetcars if you're just going to have more dash buses. And we may not have more dash buses, but I think that, that Meg, Mayor Eric Garcetti, is looking at, um, what do they call it, microservices? Uber? Oh, yeah, well, they want to basically have the city do Uber, um, have short end-of-trip type transit right. for small groups of people that'll be digitally implemented. I don't know if the city's up for it, but I guess it might be a little safer than just having random people drive people around. As, as an abstraction, I think it's very close to the idea that you just need more dash buses downtown. I yeah. think as I think they, as an abstraction, they fit in the same bucket. Okay, we're, we're going to move on. So that was, that was too much, that was too much time. Um, Keep going. Okay, so, uh, we just got off the phone with a, a, a new friend, and he was really sad about his friend. Right, let me do this. Okay, so we've, we've talked before on Closely Watched Trains about what's going on down at Ports of Call Village, which no longer exists. Ports of Call Village was this amazing early 60s commercial development that was um, entertainment and dining and seaside 
scrolling, kind of tiki-themed, but over time it took on its own identity, extremely important to the San Pedro community. And it was funky and run-down, but it was also really awesome. And everybody who is part of the South Bay community knew this as a place where they were comfortable. It's one of those, what they call them, the third place. Third it's, not, place. it's not home, it's not work, it's third the place third. you like to go when you're comfortable and you can meet your friends. Parking was free, you could hang out, look at the boats going by. And, of course, um, you know, we're... Very, very blue-collar. Very blue-collar. And, and good seafood, you know? Was, those are great combinations. Great combination. It, it was real. It, it wasn't curated. It wasn't phony. Um, it needed some love. It belongs to the city. The city decided, because it's very development-focused under our current administration, that what Port Sakal Village needed was not some investment in its existing infrastructure to make it a little greater than it already was, but to just be wiped off the map, obliterated the Bunker Hill solution. This is being done under the Port of L.A., and, you know, they've got a development company attached, Ratkovich. Ratkovich hasn't done so great over with the block. I don't know if they have the vision for new development along the commercial lines that the city's hoping for, but they're the ones who got this project. And some of the businesses on the plot of land, which is quite long and, and um, expansive, some of them are being allowed to stay. The Ports of Call restaurant, which is one of the earliest of the commercial developments there and one of the most popular, I actually went into court to try to be able to stay. They said, we don't understand why the fish market's being allowed to remain, and we cannot. You don't actually have a plan for when you're going to start development. You don't have any funding. This is just speculative. Why can't we keep our 100 employees, exactly 100 employees, which is interesting, and keep going? We have rest, you know, we have weddings booked. We ha we're full every brunch. Everyone wants to be here. What's the problem? So they went in court. They lost in court. They were told they might have a chance to stay open a little longer. The sheriff's department showed up and shuttered the joint. And, you know, we, we always talk about how redevelopment has incredible impacts on the human community. And sometimes there are these tragic stories, and unfortunately, Ports of Call Village and the Ports of Call Restaurant now has one of these tragic stories attached because Jim Ryan, the GM, who had to send his 100 employees home, a lot of whom older people who probably are not going to get other jobs, who have to retire now and have to completely transform their lives, he was not able to live with the pain of what happened. And a lot of people were checking on him in the immediate aftermath of the closure, and he said he was feeling better. But he wasn't, and, and he killed himself. And that is part of the story of this redevelopment project, which is, I think, just one more example of how the city doesn't listen to what its citizens care about. They just listen to the same ideas that they hear from developers and lobbyists. And at the end of the day, we all have to live with it, and I don't know why we do. I don't know why we settle for the city deciding how Los Angeles should be when it's our city. Well, I have, I have some good news, though, Kim. You do? Yeah, on this. Um, so I just I just got the phone call before we started recording. So Elon Musk, it's a war the, the ports of call is going to be the first stop in a wormhole for transportation. Singapore, the South Pole, Alpha Centauri. So the, so the entire universe is going to come into ports of call. So that's why they had to do it because it's it's the wormhole for intergalactic travel. That is so awesome. Can we just put Elon in the hole and close the hole up? We could fill the hole up with the rubble, and that would actually be worth it. It's really, it's really sad. <laughs> you um, a lot. 
So, uh, I want to get through this really quickly. So, just, um, you know, some... Okay, so Barney's Beanery, Santa Monica, and La Cienega. This is a very important old eatery. Um, Stephen Anthony, this is famously the singing... Stephen Anthony is famously the singing bartender of Barney's Beanery in the early 60s. You mean Stephen Anthony? Stephen Anthony, whose house... Stephen Anthony, the Hollywood... Museum, that whole thing. Come on, Richard. Stephen Anthony, the hero of redevelopment opposition who leaned out of the window of his storybook cottage in the Hollywood Hills with a gun, a rifle, with his baby under his arm and said, you're never going to take my house, Hollywood Museum, to give this piece of private man's property, a a veteran's property, away to a bunch of rich people who want a tax write-off. I, I was actually thinking, I wanted to get the Charlie Sample, Stephen Anthony's friend. No, don't go into the whole thing. Just get oh, on with it. Okay. Well, Stephen Anthony's important. Well, I know, but you can he, link to the whole podcast. We got lots of stuff about okay. Steve Anthony. So, so, Bar- so Barney's Beanery. He's, so he, he was a waiter. He, he, he was. He's the was the scene bartender of Barney's Beanery. So now there's a new so. So this this architecture firm M A D. I think they're from China. They're. Yeah, so this is the danger of a city saying, oh, hey, multi-billionaire George Lucas, sure, we'll take your museum of narrative art that no other city wants, uh, that Chicago and San Francisco have both refused because you're asking for things you shouldn't be asking for on public lands. We'll just give you a parking lot over by USC in Exposition Park, and you'll build your futuristic museum which actually is fine, and I like illustration art, and I think there's going to be some interesting stuff there, and it's, you know, it's okay. It's fine. The problem is, then you get this incredibly high-powered architectural firm coming out from China, and they're looking for other work, and so what they've come up with, because they don't know what Route 66 is, and they don't care what Barney's Beanery is, and they just want the work, and there are property owners who would love to have the highest and best use for their Route 66 roadside attraction, Barney's Beanery, Um, they come up with this incredibly complicated, multi-layered, oozing, amorphous blob that they want to plop on top of a reconstructed Barney's Beanery, and it's a really unfortunate proposal. Alan Ladd, Cesar Romero, Marilyn Monroe, James Dean... None of these people think this is cute. These are all <laughs> former. These these are all people that made Barney's Beanery famous. Okay, so we're we're moving on. Um, uh, we do? Uh, yeah. Can I just address the the no faggots allowed thing? Well, I I didn't. Yes, Kim. No, of course I want you can. to because I, that's yes, please. Because I've actually seen. You know, I, I, I keep an eye on social media, and I've actually seen people say this is a great project because we need more hotels. Wormhole. 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 I know, I know. We need more hotels. And anyway, that place is disgusting because they had a sign on the wall that said no faggots allowed. And that's part of the point, my friends. They had that sign, and it went away because gay people rose up and said, we're not going to allow you to treat us this way. And West Hollywood, and, you know, there's a reason that sign was up, and it has to do with the history of policing in West Hollywood, and it's very interesting. And there were always gay people who hung out in there until they decided not to, and that's all part of the history, too. You can't erase this stuff. That's the same sort of argument that was used to justify the demolition of Parker Center 
by Jose Huizar, um, and it's just not valid. You can't say a place is so full of evil. It's like a serial killer's den, and it must be erased, and we have to salt the earth, then burn it, and then salt it again, so that we will never have that kind of evil in the world again. It's incredibly disingenuous, and I think when those types of arguments are brought up, people need to say, hey, that's not cool, that's not what we're talking about here. So, I'm just bringing it up. Thanks, Kim. Okay, so I'm going to try and get through this one quickly, because we have to keep moving. Okay. So, um... So building so Roosevelt High is is in is in Boyle Heights. It's at Soto and Fourth, uh, southeast corner. So that, that's one of the one of the perimeter corners of it. It's a giant obvious campus. Uh, so the blowouts famously, March 6, nineteen seventy. You get the blowouts, right? What's that? The blow uh, sixty eight March six nineteen sixty eight. You get these walkouts, Chicano. There's one of these these core moments early in the Chicano rights movement. Okay, and high school students, high school students leave. They walk out of class. Uh, they walk out of class for several days. This spreads across East Los Angeles throughout LA Unified High Schools in Eastern Los Angeles. Uh, by March six, uh, the principal of Roosevelt High locks the gates, as in like like lock like like, like elite like 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 like, like like fire hazard, like he should have like been cited for whatever. Okay, but instead of that, the LAPD surround the school and its students jump over the fences to leave their. Anyway, building R is crucial. is a huge part of this, an important part of this narrative uh, for the Chicano moratorium, the Chicano civil rights movement, and LA Unified is going to tear the building down. And I take great exception. Is that right? Way I'm, I'm I'm not happy with. I take great great, great exception. exception to the Los Angeles Conservancies. No, stop. Okay. Okay, because that's not the issue here. The issue is that a small group that no one that didn't exist before this was a problem formed. Um, at this coalition to preserve Roosevelt, is yeah. that what they're called? And they negotiated with um, one of the city council members, not actually the Boyle Heights city councilman, though, with oh, Gil no. Cedillo, which is odd. And, and they, you know, were fighting to save Building R, and then they announced, oh, no, it's cool, we've come to a solution we're happy with. And that involves demolition and saving, like, some relics, like that bit of the old Pasadena library in the park. And it's, that's BS. That's not a preservation solution. That's a demolition. And that's why none of the real preservation groups that were fighting to preserve Roosevelt High would give a quote to anyone in the media about this, which is very discreet on their parts, but they should be giving quotes and saying this isn't acceptable. A small community group can rise up at any time. We're, we're part of them sometimes, and we work with them all the time, but they're not always right. And it's not okay to come to the table with a politician and say, we've come to an agreement that we're happy with. Because preservation is a lot more complicated than just saving a little bit of exterior wall and promising that you're going to have some sort of interpretive material. That's, that's really, really sad. And it's, you know, I'm sorry if the people who felt like they were fighting for Roosevelt got something that's good enough. It, it really isn't. And they should work more closely with preservation organizations if they want to be preservationists because it's way more complicated than this and you have to be a lot tougher and not just take the first thing they hand you because it's not good enough and it doesn't mean anything for the future to have these scraps. These scraps are, I'm sorry, they're garbage. Yeah. 
And and by the way, that was the second set of blowouts at Roosevelt High. The first set was in nineteen uh, nineteen thirty. With, uh, at uh, yeah, the, the the first blowouts, of course, the, the 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 Jewish students whose parents were members of the Communist Party and printers who had printer who had print shops in their garages for for jobs on the weekends. They they printed their own papers and they wrote articles in favor of the Soviet Union and and they all got expelled. And I promise you that will not be in the tr- interpretive presentation that has been accepted by the so-called preservation group. And that's. Part of the reason that it's not good enough to just say okay to whatever the politicians offer because it rarely comes from a really scholarly place. I think we need to move on. Boy, that got my blood boiling. Silent movie theater. I'm going to let you do this one, Kim, because you you seem to have a special spot in your heart for silent movie theater. Well, yeah. I mean, I I went to Fairfax High, so it's part of my my landscape. The silent movie theater is a really interesting place. Um, it became used to be. Used to be. Uh, it 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 became the silent movie theater at a time when silent movies were already obsolete. But there was always a cult of people who thought they were great, and there was this lovely older couple who ran it. And a I lot was of there. you were there, Richard. A lot of things went really, really bad at the <laughs> silent. So basically, um, people always say there's some kind of curse at the silent movie theater, and it, it's a very specialized curse. I've thought about it a lot. The silent movie theater, if you own and manage it. Well, like all people who own and manage small movie theaters, you you become insane if you aren't already. And a manifestation of your absolute natural essence will become visible to the outside world. You cannot keep secrets when you own the silent movie theater or whatever new iteration it takes. And so when bad people own the silent or manage the silent, the world finds out and it's really ugly. And so most recently... Uh, it was Cine Family, which for about a decade was this community repertory house with a lot of wacky shenanigans going on. So many good people passed through <laughs> Cine Family and usually went out the back door as soon as they could because it was a really dysfunctional environment. And in the Me Too movement aftermath, it came out that there was a lot of abusive staff going on, so they shut down. They're still owned by the same people. They're still um, controlled by the same people who were on the board while all that stuff was going on. And for all that people care about the silent movie theater as a historic venue, it's never been a landmark. It isn't now. No one's ever tried, as far as I know. So currently, um, after being closed for about a year and change, um, it's uh, being gutted. And the... uh, Photographs of the silent stars are visible on the door in what is a construction zone, and don't think whatever the Fairfax Cinema, which is what they're rebranding it as, uh, ends up being, um, it's not going to be in any way the silent movie theater. All of the physical elements of what was the old place are going away, and that's sad because, you know, whatever stigma is attached to its most recent management, it's had a lot of L.A. history has gone on in that place, and I think it deserved a little more, um, you know, a little more of a preservation hand. But good luck to them. We'll see, Kim. Okay, we've got a couple more. We've got to do this. Okay, so uh, the Music Center on Bunker Hill is undergoing a, a major renovation for its plaza and the original... Uh, the the original installation, which is just this gorgeous, well, it's gone, so it was uh, one of the most important 
public spaces installed in downtown in uh, the mid-1960s is now gone. Uh, they had this beautiful axial walkway with the Jacques Lipschitz Peace on Earth sculpture, which was just moved, that's the point of this, and they've already moved the Robert Graham Dance Portal. Which and and which had a great vista. So and this is just um, we're calling this out because you I know you, you obviously you agree with me. We were very unhappy that the music center has decided that they're going to reinterpret this really beautiful uh, what was a really beautiful mid-century um, public space. I think one of the, one of the greatest, and they've destroyed it, and they just want more room for parties with 5,000 people, and the Lipschitz is going to become back into central focus, but the Robert Graham dance portal is going to get put in behind some trees? This is like, I don't know. Yeah, it was a really special space because there wasn't a lot of architecture. There was a lot of art, and then there was a lot of open space, and it was very much a, a 1960s landscape. And when we're looking at things like the L.A. County Museum of Art, which has been so terribly remodeled and Pereira's um, plaza courtyard design destroyed. It, it's just sad to see a 1960s environment just go away without any uh, consciousness yeah. that it, you know, is worth preserving. But, you know, there's nothing that can be done. A lot of money at play, and they're going to have giant parties, and it's all part of Grand Park sort of feeding up the hill. Yeah, and, and just so everyone knows, you know, I, it was interesting. I was in communication with the Music Center archivists, and about two years ago, and I was like, oh, we should do a lava Sunday salon. I understand you're going to remodel the courtyard, and that's going to be great because you're going to f make everything even better. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. We should talk about that. Uh, yeah, we'll get back to you after the new year. And then they're like, yeah, we can't talk to you. <laughs> we can't do a salon about our remodel. Right, because if you watch one of these videos, you're like, Mm, they're not going to like it. Let's, <laughs> let's not even go there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so Kim, um, yeah, Los Angeles is going to hire... Oh, I want to do this. Okay, yeah. okay. I'm going to okay. say it, so, just say it. Well, so what I'm going to say is, is um, the head of, of, of a department, be that a department like Recreation and Parks or the Office of the Mayor or a council district, the council member, the mayor, the general manager of an office sets of a, of a department sets the tone for his staff. So we're talk we're talking about a new position in the office of the mayor. So obviously Meg, Mayor Eric Garcetti, sets the tone for this. I'm I'm really hoping that that Meg can find his focus again because I think Meg has lost his focus if he ever had it to begin with. But um <laughs> I'd like Meg to, to come back into focus because he now wants to create an office. Uh, I'm calling it the czar of tourism, but that's, of course, a colloquialism. It's not really a tourism office, and it's very strange. Um, so what's being put forward is that the city apparently has a quarter of a million dollars to spend off, out of the general fund, and they want to spend it on bringing someone in to provide a report through the lens of tourism. How can Los Angeles become... Uh, more appealing to tourists? How can we bring more tourists into the city? How can they have a better experience with less traffic and less homelessness? Experiencing and people who are homeless. Experiencing less. people that are homeless. Uh, and well, some people come as tourists and they, they blow all their money and they become homeless. It happens. It, it's such a backwards sort of idea.
So despite the problems that we're having, you know, internationally, we're not getting as many overseas tourists as we once did because the country isn't as welcoming and, you know, sometimes it's more expensive to come here than go somewhere else. The problems that need solving are not getting more people to come to Los Angeles. Los Angeles is an enormous draw for people all around the world, and they are going to come. Um, I think the problems that need to be solved, traffic, homelessness, these are problems for everyday life. I don't think anybody in the tourism business has any special expertise to tell us how to make things better. They can certainly tell you how tourists like to experience things, assuming they're tourists who like to do things in groups, but... So what? I mean, that's not really a city position. But here we are talking about it. So I'd like to see homelessness solved in my lifetime, and I'd like to see traffic become a little more manageable. Maybe not building giant hotels on top of Route 66 roadhouses would help with the traffic. What do you think? I, I, I think that um, these, are, these are major policy challenges, and... Uh, mayor Eric Garcetti, because he's simply mayor, is in an inherently weak position, and I don't really think the office of the mayor is the place that's going to push strong um, direction on public policy. I think city council is going to, and and I just don't see it happening. So, I I'm I I just let's Kim let's let's talk about um, Michael Govan and LACMA. This is always interesting to us because it's part of our Pereira in Peril campaign. And um, we would very much like to see the L.A. County Museum of Art restored to its 1965 original design, bearing in mind that there have been many decades of deferred maintenance, large structures have been added, that it's the Anderson Building, the Art of the Americas Building, uh, things that interfere with the original design that Pereira came up with. Uh, there were problems with the original pools and fountains that desperately needed to be resolved never were, so there's less in the way of water features. But it would just be a wonderful thing to try to go back to what was. Whatever you think of it as architecture, and what most people think of it as architecture is they look back at how it was critiqued in the 1960s, and it wasn't immediately beloved. But if you talk to Angelinos, you talk to people who discovered culture and the arts going to the L.A. County Museum of Art, which was once an extremely egalitarian place where everybody went on school field trips and we went with our grandparents and we went with our moms and we went with our babysitters and it was just a place we hung out and we got to know all about the tar pits, which is why that land was given to the county in the first place. We got to understand about giant sloths and dire wolves and maybe we discovered Andy Warhol and we learned that we liked sculpture. Maybe we even wanted to be artists, all of that stuff. People who experienced the original Pereira County Museum as Angelinos really loved it because it was a great space, and it was a lot like that space up at the Music Center where there really wasn't much in the way of architecture. The architecture and the artwork were a frame for the human experience. And people actually know how to use public space. These wonderful plazas, it was the closest thing we had to, um, to Venice. It was wonderful. So we'd like to see it come back. That's not the proposal that's been pushed forward by Michael Govan and his board of directors. They would like to do something that's really grand, and they've brought in Peter Zumthor from Switzerland, and he's had a variety of designs that are inspired by the shape of the tar pits 
Interesting. Um, I think it's really unfortunate that the proposal now involves and has for a while bridging Wilshire Boulevard, Wilshire, which is a national scenic byway, and landing on the large parking lot that LACMA owns and rendering it an unbuildable site because I think it would be important to build on that site at some point in the future. So this latest update that is the reason for this closely watched train is that Michael Govan's given an update on where they stand in terms of fundraising. I'll let you take the fundraising angle, but an interesting thing that he had to say in this piece was that um, he has directed the architect to build something that cannot be added to. He wants it to be a sculptural piece that never changes, never evolves. And I think it's really hard to know what Los Angeles is going to be like in 30 years and to know that you're never going to need to add and adapt and grow and that spreading out into the wider city is the answer. I just don't know if that's the case. That that really troubled me. That seemed like a decision that should be made perhaps in a voter referendum rather than by a board and a museum director because you're talking about things that belong to the county, things that are in the public trust. And once again, it's all happening on land that was given specifically to interpret fossil life, not to be an art museum. It's become an art museum and it's incredibly important, but should the art museum be making these types of decisions for future of Los Angeles? So... You know, we we get really invested in these really awful projects because we'd like to believe that we can impact the dialogue and, and we end up at these meetings and just the level of callousness and the lack of interest from staff of public officials about what input is to this is just shocking. It it really is and, and you're just met with this was decided 40 years ago by Zev Yaroslavsky, and that's just the answer to everything. And, and you, just, you just come out of these meetings and you think, I don't know. I'm just like, I don't know. I, 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 you, just, you, you really get the sense that the bureaucracy, which is the county of Los Angeles, which is a horrific entity, that the county of Los Angeles is a bureaucracy, exists to perpetuate itself, the bureaucracy, not any human that works for it, and, and certainly not the people that live in the county. And I think this is a really great example of the self-perpetuating, self-protectivist, perpetuating machine, which is the bureaucracy of Los Angeles, to move forward with this project. So where are they at with the funding? I don't know. They're like, Michael says they're short. So I guess they're short. He says uh, they've got to come up with 600 million by the end of the year. He seems skeptical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's he said he's got half of it. I don't know. Okay. So, but it, it's interesting because if the Zumpther plan doesn't end up happening for one reason or another, if there just isn't, and, and let's, let's be honest. I mean, when they write the history of this time in American culture and all the things that are going on, can you get anything done while Donald Trump is president? I mean, it's astonishing that anything is getting done. It's probably one of the hardest times to go out and try to do something that has nothing to do with American politics. Um, we get stuff done all the time. Well, yeah, I know, but we're special. But if it ends up not happening, if the Zumthor plan is, is dead in the water for whatever reason, which seems to be a possibility, well, then what? I mean, are all of these 
funds that have been promised for a completely spectacular, architecturally distinguished structure to span Wilshire? Are those funds still going to be available to get down into the bones of Pereira's LACMA and fix it? No, Kim, no. No, <laughs> no people no. people pledge funds for a specific project. I, I, I do not know, and I want to end on that note, that I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question, Kim. Okay, I think that the Los Angeles County Museum of Art is in pretty crummy shape, the infrastructure. And um, I think this is a very serious problem, and I think it's it's a lot more than Michael Govan would like this to happen, because he would like to help redefine the shape of Los Angeles and be a cutting edge of design. I, I think that there are serious challenges facing the existing LACMA campus, and something has to happen, and, and I'm concerned about that. But I want to leave on a positive note because we've started going there on a tour. I've written this new Wilshire Boulevard death trip tour that starts at the at the downtown end of Wilshire and takes us as far as the county museum and includes some stories about really oddball stuff around the early days of fossil discovery. And taking people into that park. We don't go into the museum section, but we come around the back of the museum where they have the tar pits, where they're doing the excavations. And we walk the entire length of the block. It is wonderful. It is one of the best public spaces in Los Angeles, and it's just the backyard of the museum. But people come there, they're comfortable, they're interacting, they get it, they know what they're doing there. It is a pleasure to be in that space, and I just hope whatever ends up happening, this continues to be a great Los Angeles space, because uh, when you're walking around it, it really feels like it felt back when the Pereira was intact, and I think that's a wonderful thing and worth holding on to. Okay, now I'm going to get the last word, and I'm just going just gonna to throw some stuff that we hear aside as we leave meetings. Apparently there's a fair amount of tension between the Natural History Museum and LACMA, and it's not entirely certain that LACMA would win a land grab for this new iteration. Wow. I, I, like, there's like some, like, like, I'd like to figure, find out more about it in print, but like, the, the, like the Natural History Museum, which controls the tar pit area that we were just talking about. You saying they got some juice there? I, I yeah. it's like there's like, the, it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be really interesting. Okay, so we have to stop. We have to stop. I have to just say because I want to include it in the list of closely watched trains. We, ju I'm just going to say, and we're not going to talk any more about it. That Sarah Gordo. Yes, we are. Give me. Uh, no, Renny Nadeau's silver no, mining town, Sarah Gordo, has been sold. You can do it. Okay. Okay. Sean just sold it to a... Cons microphone. 19th century ghost town without any running water. And it's finally been sold. And the guys who bought it want to keep it intact. And we're just going to see what happens. And we wish them all the luck in the world. It can be an incredible place. It definitely needs people with a little more resources than the family that's been running it. And uh, it's a good thing. It's a good thing because it's a very important place in the creation of Southern California. It needs a tramway. Oh, yeah. it, it, this is like, it, like, it just so desperately needs an investor who has experience building tramways that just says, okay, this is going to be part of my juice putting into this. And, and you could just, just, wow. Okay. Okay, so we have to talk about, we have to get to the interviews. Okay, so the first interview is Alan Hess, so I'm going to introduce him second. So I'm going to introduce Allison 
and Tessa and Sarah and Sarah right now. Okay, all right. So we have three. So I want to get this. I want to take a breath and get this right. Okay. So our second interview is about Rancho Los is about uh, Rancho Los Cerritos, and um, they uh, we're talking to them about their open door campaign. We've done a number of interviews about Rancho Los Cerritos and with with the former director Alan and the history and all the different phases and it's super interesting and we'll we'll touch on that. But we're just with Allison we're gonna jump into the thick of it here and now, getting this nineteenth century artifact into the twenty first century and their open doors campaign is part of that. It's part of a twenty five year master plan. And so what they want to do with open doors, this is a the next three years they want to raise six million dollars. Okay? New exhibits, preserve the archives, uh bolster access to the home and increase support for their educational programs. They have a lot of kids. What is it? Six thousand plus students every year? So it's it's and the archives is Yeah. I, I said that. I said preserve archives. No, no, said, no, no, no. But the room where they're storing the archives is this grand living room and yes. they're gonna open it to the public and we got to look in there right. and we'll, we'll share some photos on this page. It's a great room. Um, at the moment, it's filled with shelving and really cool stuff, but it's going to become a public space, and it's going to transform people's experience of what it was like to live at this historic rancho in the early 20th century when it was um, the home to historically-minded Bixby's who decided to preserve it and make it part of you know, the public spaces of Southern California. So it's very, very exciting. Yes. Okay. And so, so Alice, and we usually just interview interview one person, but we're going to interview because uh, it's easier. But I think it worked out really well. We're going to interview Allison, who's executive director. We're going to interview Tessa Cavanaugh. She's the annual fund manager, so she's explicitly overseeing this this three year campaign. And we're going to talk to Sarah Fitzgerald. She's the historical curator, and she's the one that's moving. See, she's sort she's sort of sad because I mean she's not sad. She's really excited about. But oh, I know. She, the archive is like this totally amazing space, and she's like the archivist, and so she gets to hang out, and, and it's not open to the public, so it's like, but that's going to, okay. So this is a great interview, um, and we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll bump into that second, and then we'll get, oh, we're also, Kim, why don't you talk about the 3D scan? So we, we weren't there at the 3D scan, because we, we, we went away for a well-deserved holiday, but our friend Craig... We brought the, we brought him down. He and Allison hit it off, and he did a scan of one of the children's rooms upstairs. Yeah. So uh, Craig Sauer, we've done a series of these really interesting three-dimensional explorable tours of spaces using the Matterport camera that he has, and it's kind of like Google Street View for historic interiors. We've taken people to a lot of offbeat spaces that you can't normally access. And he's a Long Beach guy, so he was super excited to be able to do something there. And although this is actually an accessible room, it's the children's room that he's scanned, he's gone into places that are normally roped off in order to give you a more intimate experience. And it's probably uh, just one in a series of scans that he's going to create. And I'm glad he's scanning because it's such an enormous compound. And I think that once he gets enough rooms done, you'll be able to lift up and look at that dollhouse view yeah. and really understand how the um, the adobe is structured. And certainly, it's going to expose that wonderful, great room that is going to be public as part of this great new campaign. I, I, I think Allison and Craig have a lot of good work to do together. All right, so that's 
That's our second interview, so the Bixby's, the Bixby's who built Long Beach. Okay, so our first interview is going to be with architect and historian Alan Hess. Alan is a very good friend of ours. Alan is going to be talking about the Times Mirror Square, that's the L.A. Times compound, which is currently in process for being considered for landmark status with the Cultural Heritage Commission, the CHC. You put that together. I... I, I Yes, so so, ten years ago, we started a long, long road to get to where we are now, and about five years ago, we started reaching out to Alan Hess, and it took a while to connect with him because he travels so much, and and I I think I think he really genuinely thought we were making fun of him when we said we wanted. We wanted to to bring Per. I, I think he thought like they must be joking. Like is this like a joke to like distract me, or, or or like developers like trying to like have me go down this rabbit hole so I get lost and I like don't write any more books and then they can just tear all of Long Be- all, all of Orange County down. Uh, tear all of Orange County down, not with the newly formed Preserve Orange County organization that Alan is a leading member of. I should say not. <laughs> so right. So so we've just. This has been this amazing journey with many, many people. And Alan is is one of these core people. And so he is going to talk about the 1973 William Pereira addition to Times Mirror Square. And and this is is one of the most contested aspects of this nomination. And uh, it's the most important. And so we're just going to roll up our sleeves and, and jump into the thick of it with him. And what am I forgetting? You're not forgetting anything, but if anyone listening to this is of the belief that the only buildings at the LA Times that matter are the ones that face Spring Street that are more traditional architecture in the the modern style or the Art Deco style, and you think that the Pereira building is disposable because when you look at it, you see something that's ugly, I'm just going to ask you to listen with an open mind because when we took on this campaign, we were asked by the city... No, you can't just landmark the Art Deco building. You have to come back with a nomination that includes the entire block. And we said, even the Pereira? We were absolutely aghast and flabbergasted, but we were told, yes, the Pereira. And it wasn't until we started working with Alan and he let us see the Pereira through his eyes that we understood what was going on. We didn't think it was a bad building, but we didn't no, understand. What, no, Kim, you're, you're, you're... You're giving you're giving fodder to our detractors. The challenge, the challenge, and the sigh I let out when Ken Bernstein told me ten years ago we had to landmark all three buildings, is the sigh I have at the prospect of every historic cultural monument nomination. This one just inc- this one just multiplied by a hundred billion. What is the historic context statement? And the historic and that's why it took so long. Because, like, we had to become Pereira experts so we could quickly, easily, and deftly in three pages write an historic context statement for why you should give a good goddamn about William Pereira. Or, not, know, not be- well, 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 you mean we got Alan, who's a William Pereira expert. I, 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 point is, I worked on it, too. <laughs> I, know, I know, and I did, too. But what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to say here is just listen with an open mind because I'm so tired of people just saying, I hate that building. It's a tumor. Curbed voted it the second ugliest building in L.A. There's so much more going on here, and you cannot touch that building without demolishing half of the facade of the Kaufman Art Deco building. So you're going to have to get comfortable with it because we're taking it straight to city council, and we're going to try to landmark this. 
And we're not doing this to stop redevelopment because we started this before the building was owned by developers. We're doing this because it's the right thing to do and because the entire history of Southern California is on this corner. All four sides of it. And if you take away the 1973 William Pereira building, then you are taking away evidence of the LA Times actually being an important, progressive, internationally significant newspaper. And I'm not willing to do that. And we'll see if the city is, too. We're not even at the draft EIR yet, babe. Not even at the draft EIR. So everyone just, this is an uphill bicycle race, and I've been at it for 10 years, and I really, I, I, th I think I hit my pace here. So, so we're going to just jump into the thick of it with our good friend and William Pereira expert, who is also successfully, uh, who also successfully about two months before uh, we went to the CHC last week uh, with the Times Mirror Square Allen, successfully got the CHC, the Cultural Heritage Commission, to approve and send on to planning and land use management and eventually to City Council, CBS's Television City, which is a very early William Pereira structure. So Now so, a landmark! So, the mind is universal and let's take it away. Alan, Alan, I'm here with you. We're in Irvine. We're at Wholesome Choice Market, which is actually one of my favorite places in the entire world. And I want you to properly introduce yourself, and we have a lot to talk about. Well, I'm Alan Hess. I'm an architect and historian. I'm particularly interested in the uh, uh, mid-century architecture of Los Angeles and uh, its innovations and how it led modern architecture in the late 20th century. All right, good. So you are very well qualified to talk to us about William Pereira. William Pereira, I'm being, okay, I'm sort of being obtuse. You, you, you've been deeply involved with the campaign to landmark Times Mirror Square. Uh, this is, uh, we're going to publish this on July 15. On July 19, the Cultural Heritage Commission has their first hearing. We hope the first hearing. Uh, to consider Times Mirror Square as an historic cultural monument for the city of Los Angeles. Tell us quickly about the Pereira edition, which is part of Times Mirror Square nomination, and then we'll step back and talk about Pereira in general and come back at the end to continue why you should care about William Pereira and his amazing Times Mirror Square edition from 1973. Well, if you look at the three main buildings of Times Mirror Square, um, they are a part of Los Angeles history. And um, you can't have one without the other. The Pereira Building completes the story of how the Los Angeles Times became, was and became, and grew as one of the most influential and eventually respected newspapers in the country. Right, and, and we have an interview with Leah Walensky about how the history of Southern California is personified in these three buildings. Your task before you right now is to explain to us Imperial California. In doing so, we're going to go through, well, we're going to start where we are here in Irvine and go through a whole series of Pereira buildings and come back to William Pereira's 1973 Times Mirror Square and why you should care so much about this building. So take a deep breath, 
Imperial, California, and William Pereira? Well, put in context, California became the most populous state in the nation in 1964. Ever since the end of World War II, people were flooding into the state. It was booming. Uh, that, of course, brought population. It brought the need for you know, uh, housing and libraries and schools and businesses. But the thing is about California, ever since you know, the late 19th century, California had been one of the most innovative um, architectural uh, locations in the, in the nation, probably the world as well. Um, Los Angeles, California just has this incredible uh, uh, interest in experiment, in trying new things, and the people uh, support new ideas. Uh, the people in California didn't expect things to stay within a certain envelope. Uh, and so the architects, and again, you know, the architects, many of them are well-known, Richard Neutra, Rudolf Schindler, Frank Lloyd Wright, Lloyd Wright, uh, Charles Eames, Pierre Koenig, you go on and on. There's an incredible um, uh, vitality in the creativity of California architects. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you to make a gloss. All the names you've thrown out, some of, a couple are immediate post-war, but mostly the ones you've thrown out, people really identify with pre-war Los Angeles. And so what I think you're about to get into is William Pereira is this guy post-war, Suburbs. This is the guy that takes a totally new Southern California from from before World War II, and and, and yeah. really helps define it. Well, I want to you know set up that California has always had this atmosphere of innovation and yep. trying new things. Yep. After World War II, as I said, population is exploding. The economy is exploding in the areas of um, of aerospace, very definitely in terms of energy production manufacturing, certainly media of all sorts, including the brand new media of uh, a medium of television. Um, and so all of this feeds into this creativity of this period and of the architecture of the period. Um, and this is where William Pereira uh, fits in. This is a period after World War II into the 60s and 70s that I call Imperial California. All of these industries and their products are being developed here, responding to the California uh, population, and they're being spread not only nationwide, but worldwide. And so in that way, California was a colonial power, a cultural colonial power, which was spreading its movies, its television, its music, its lifestyles, its surfing, its you know, products, its, um, its technology around the world. Um, incredibly important and vital. And William Pereira, who arrived in Los Angeles in 1938 from Chicago, where he was born, um, fitted in very well. And he learned from and he adapted to it. He became a Southern Californian because of all of this vitality, this new, uh, these new ideas about architecture and living and so forth. Um, so, along with his partner, Charles Luckman, they partnered in 1950, uh, they begin to become one of the most important architects of that period. Now, yeah, I also, of course, acknowledge and uh, respect um, Welton Beckett Associates, 
and Victor Gruen Associates, no, A.C. Martin. No, no, no one thinks you don't respect these architects. Well, but this period has been so kind of neglected. These were yeah. just considered like, you know, oh, corporate architects, they, they just did the bidding of their corporate clients. It wasn't real architecture. But all of them, including Pereira and Lachman, uh, were really serious architects who were innovating beyond just giving the client what they wanted. And that's the important thing. And so uh, Pereira is one of the main shapers of this period of Southern California boom, of Imperial California. And you look at a list of his buildings uh, through that period, and these are all just remarkably inventive highlights defining a new way of life and a new way of looking at modern architecture. I mean, you can start certainly with uh, CBS Television City. Oh no, I want to. I want to start with where we are right now. Okay, Irvine. Irvine. Okay, Irvine, because we're right here. We'll get to Television City. Don't worry. Okay. Okay. So, just like you could travel the eastern and western Mediterranean on both sides and go to Roman towns that are all that have a similar plan, mm-hmm. we're in Irvine. This is this is an imperial settlement by William Pereira. Uh, yeah, you could put it that way. Um, because as Southern California was spreading, of course, one of the things that it did was it developed suburbs. The San Fernando Valley, San Gabriel Valley, the, uh, the west side down to Palos Verdes. All of these areas had been mostly agricultural, but after, in this period of Imperial California, they were being developed as residential, as workplaces, with schools and libraries and parks and, and so forth. However, a lot of that planning was fairly ad hoc, even haphazard. And suburbia, as in general, was criticized because it was a little bit formless. Um, Pereira shared that criticism, but he said, we can do something better. And he said, still suburban, still is a decentralized city, but we can bring together all of the necessary elements of a good city, diversity of housing, uh, parks, nature and green space, schools, libraries, workplaces, etc., and we can organize them in a logical and intelligent and well-designed way. That was Irvine, which opened first in 1965. Uh, Of course, it was tied to the opening of the uh, University of California, Irvine, which Pereira also planned, also designed all of the original buildings, or most of the original buildings for. So it was this, again, this is an outpost, but in some ways certainly a regional capital of Imperial California, with this great new university and this new type of city being developed around it. That is, again, where we are right now. Perfect. Okay. Let's, you mentioned Palos Verdes Peninsula, one of, a, a place we've given a bus tour. Um, marine land of the Pacific. Well, again, Pereira was thinking about what are these new people flooding into Southern California going to do? They're going to live, they're going to work, they needed a place to play with their young families as well. And so marine land of the Pacific, that he did with Charles Luckman, kind of reinvented the museum and the theme park and the outdoor pleasure park all together. So it was this very large outdoor aquarium 
uh, with tanks for the uh, for the animals. This is uh, in about 1953, 54, 55, uh, in that period. So this was one of these places where these new Southern Californians were going for recreation. And again, inventing a new type of facility for them and placing it on the Palos Verdes Peninsula. So that's just one example of the sort of innovation of Pereira's planning. Okay, let's let's keep moving on large-scale planning. Los Angeles International Airport. Yeah, well, since the early 1950s at least, uh, LAX was planning to expand. It realized that the city needed a um, an up-to-date jet port. And this is before jets were even commonly used by the big carriers. Um, and so Pereira and Luckman uh, began planning that in the early 1950s. Eventually, by the late 1950s, uh, Welton Beckett and Paul Williams joined the uh, the project as uh, as architects as well. But Pereira uh, was certainly the lead architect on many of the major elements, including the theme building, the uh, the great spider leg structure right at the center of the complex as well. That was designed out of Pereira's office, and. It really is uh, Los Angeles' Eiffel Tower. It's the one symbol that almost everybody around the world you know, recognizes. And what does it say? It does say that this is the city of the future today. Uh, it's uh, modern engineering, modern forms. It has nothing to do with the past. Uh, and, of course, it's for this incredibly modern, efficient uh, mode of transportation of the jet plane as well. Yes, and the materials for the the, the, the spider legs are steel over plaster over steel. Exactly. Yeah, they are steel, engineered by uh, the great uh, uh, structural engineer Richard Bradshaw. Good. Okay. Perfect. Um, let's stick. Let's let's keep this a relative progression. Let's talk about Television City which you prepared the historic cultural monument for. So tell us about Television City, and before you talk about it, tell us about the cultural heritage, the, the historic cultural monument status of Pereira and Luckman's Television City. Well, uh, of course, uh, Richard and Kim and I and others have been concerned for many years that Pereira's legacy is threatened. A lot of buildings, his buildings have been lost, and he hasn't been given the respect uh, as an innovative architect uh, that I think he deserves. Um, and one way to kind of reestablish that is the city of Los Angeles' uh, landmark uh, designation, the Historical Cultural Monument designation. And uh, a couple of Pereira's buildings at USC are, uh, are, are landmark along with other parts of USC. But... The landmarking just recently of CBS Television City from 1952 by Pereira was a great step forward in recognizing his contributions to Southern California architecture. Um, it's a really remarkable building built in 1952 for this brand new industry of television. Nobody knew what television was going to become, and yet it is still in use for its original function today in 2018. That, again, is just one indicator of Pereira and Luckman's ability to plan ahead to understand what is coming and to create buildings for the future as well as the present. 
So, uh, it, and it's also an important building in terms of Pereira's evolution of modernism. Because CBS Television City is an international-style modern building. That goes back to Germany and the Bauhaus in the 1920s. Um, a factory-like building, a building which actually borrows its aesthetic from uh, the efficiency and functionality of a factory. No detail that isn't purposeful. Uh, and the strong, rugged forms of production, for example, big walls of glass to let in light, and so forth. Uh, these are all part of the international style of modernism. Um, and that building is one of the one of the greatest examples, uh, certainly in California and even the, in the country, because it is international style, it's well done, and it's actually a factory. So it expresses its factory function in its design. Now, that was 1952, but uh, Pereira would begin to, along with many other architects like Charles Moore and Robert Venturi, begin to become dissatisfied with the international style, which was 30-some years old at the time, and so wanted to take modern architecture in a new direction, to give it a new purpose, again, in this new uh, imperial California, looking towards the future. So... Um, uh, that's what's interesting about you know the major landmarks of his career after that. Perfect. Okay, take a breath. You're doing great. You're doing great. You're doing great. All right. So, taking our cue from the spider legs of the theme building, and looking ahead to the next, the last two buildings we're going to talk about before we get back to Times Mirror Square. Looking at the next two buildings, Metropolitan, the two compounds, Metropolitan Water District and LACMA. I want you to talk about the columns, and let's and let's let's not forget UC Irvine too. So I want you to tell us. I, I think we've done this in tours. There's this great con connectivity between all Pereira projects, between the railings and the columns. So sort of sort of bring us into focus with the MWD and LACMA using that as as our entree. Well, again, uh, inter the international style of architecture typified by Mies van der Rohe's uh, Seagram's building, for example. Uh, a, a very minimalist, austere, beautiful building with uh, its, its steel structure, uh, I-beams exposed on the exterior, its form following the function of the structure, just very straightforward in a straightforward manner. Um, but this was an aspect of modernism which really was getting a little stale by this time. This is where Pereira begins to come in and say, we can be have form, we can have it follow function, but let's look more broadly at the functions. So these examples, well, I, I think the Metropolitan Water District is the key turning point, really, in his, uh, his idea about what modernism can be. So in that case, you have these twin concrete uh, columns holding up uh, concrete beams on either side of the building, extending through the building, um, but the structure is pulled out from the building volume itself and created in this beautiful dual set of, of columns which uh, have are, are repeated down the side of the building as well. And they extend up into the sky as well. So they're integrating the building with the sky, the blue sky of Southern California beyond. Um, 
And so they have the sculptural sense. They, they capture the sunlight, they capture the shadow, but they're still functioning as structure uh, very directly. Um, and then he brings that into, again, all of the, the human spaces, the pathways, uh, the terraces, the outdoor water features, etc., the pools, uh, especially appropriate for the metropolitan water district. Um, and so you'll see in this you know, large complex for this institution um, these motifs which are repeated over and over to unify it into one complete campus. You see it in the pavings, you see these oval shapes in the pavings, you see them in the sunscreens. And the sunscreens, again, are one of those uh, innovations of Pereira. He didn't innovate them, but he used them very successfully. Um, the sunscreens of the Metropolitan Water District are, again, held out from the edge of the building. They have all of these uh, uh, circular shapes cut into them as well, so you get light and air coming through, but you also get the sun uh, shade as well that you want. Um, you see the same thing in a different way at the uh, University of California, Irvine, where the original buildings have, each of them have a different passive sun shading system on the exterior of the building. Again, responding to Southern California, responding to the site, responding to the climate here in an imaginative new way. Still functional, but giving it an entirely new form. This is what you see over and over in Pereira in this period as he innovates for this innovative period. Okay, good. We have one more building to look and return to the to the, the focus of this podcast interview. I need for you to take us to the logical extension of the Metropolitan Water District, Pereira's design for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and its campus. Yes, they were designed about the same time as well. And oh, just, just to be perfectly clear, Metropolitan Water District actually has two distinct phases of development. 1963 is really the first, 64 is the first phase, which is the building you were talking about. Then there's a tower added in 1970, which we don't have time to get into. But I just, just, I want Yuval, I just, because Yuval is a very good friend, and I just, I just want, Yuval owns the Elysian, the, the tower's not the Elysian. I just want everyone to know we're, we're, we're skipping over the Elysian Tower. We'll try and come back to that. LACMA, 1964, immediately follows this first phase of the MWD, yeah. and, and go. Well, again, you have these two institutions which deserve monumental status. One, the Metropolitan Water District, the place of water in the development of Southern California cannot be underestimated. And the Metropolitan Water District by Pereira, along with the Department of Water and Power by E.C. Martin, and they are sitting on uh, hilltops looking at each other. These are two great monuments to... Um, uh, the, the natural element of water, which is so important to Southern California, part of Imperial California. But then also you have in Imperial California this cultural side. Uh, the city was growing. It had a sense of its, its strengths, um, uh, in not only in the city, in the state, but in the world as well. It realized Los Angeles was not just this upstart city. It was contributing in a major way to the United States economy, to culture, technology, etc., etc., And so culturally, such a city 
deserves a monument. And uh, one of them is the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, designed by Pereira. Again, I want to mention the other great cultural monument, the Music Center by Welton Beckett as well. Uh, so you have these two monuments. They are in many ways kind of the, the capital buildings of culture in Imperial California. They have that sort of grandeur, that sort of public presence uh, as originally designed. So um, uh, the uh, L.A. County Museum it, by Pereira is a collection of a few um, individual boxes, buildings, connected by these outdoor terraces, water uh, water features, pools, and sculpture, uh, modern sculpture set on the plazas. So you have the indoor-outdoor uh, life of Southern California. You can go in, look at the art, go outside, sit in the sun for a while, look at the art there, go back in. Perfect sort of design for a cultural uh, landmark in Southern California. And again, its specific design was by Pereira. It came out of his office. This was what he was doing, reinventing modern architecture for the new conditions of this modern city of Los Angeles. Okay, perfect. We are not, because we've devoted so many podcast hours to it already, we are not going to talk about the various perils that the Metropolitan Water District and LACMA face. We are here today to talk about the immediate perils that William Ferrer's 1973 Times Mirror Corporation headquarters addition to the 1935 Gordon Kaufman Los Angeles Times building faces. So, once again, take a deep breath and tell everyone listening at home why you should care about this building. We've seen Ferrera um, evolving as an architect from CBS Television City uh, to uh, LACMA, for example. This is a few years later. He's still evolving and adding new elements to respond to a new problem. The problem in this case was not an entirely new campus for CBS or LACMA, but a building right in the center of downtown, right across from City Hall, and next to one of the great buildings of Southern California, the original uh, Los Angeles Times building by Gordon Kaufman, a, a great monument from the 1930s, which just embodies the, uh, the power and the, the, the uh, self-awareness uh, of Southern California and the L.A. Times and the Chandler family uh, at that period in time. So here's Pereira. He uh, is asked by Otis Chandler, the fairly recent publisher of the L.A. Times, to design an edition. The paper is expanding. It's expanding in its influence, its power, and its concept of itself at this time. It's, it's more up-to-date. It's more modern than it has ever been before. Pereira is the perfect architect to uh, express this. And he's designed Otis's parents' house, too. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, long... I'm sorry, he's now. designed a house for Otis himself. Yeah. He's just designed a house for Otis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, that's the challenge. How do you do it? A downtown building on a, you know, a restricted city block, certain size, um, without overpowering the magnificent original building. And this is very important, because at this point, early 1970s, architects didn't really 
care that much about historic preservation. If they were adding on on you, you, you could say that today, too. You could say it today, but at least it's more of a lip service to <laughs> the idea. A lot of historic buildings were just torn down. You had a nice, flat piece of property that you built something very brand new. I mean, frankly, that's what happened with um, uh, the, uh, the music center as well. Yes. A lot of those buildings were just torn down, and you built a beautiful new music center. Here, however, Pereira decides, and this is after, you know, eight, nine years after the music center, Pereira says, no, we're going to respect that original 1930s building. I'm going to build something new, something modern that expresses Otis Chandler's vision for the LA Times and Los Angeles itself. But, and it's going to be modern, modern materials, modern forms, but I'm going to respect that older building. I'm going to keep it lower. I'm going to have it set back. I'm going to have its materials contrast and not overwhelm the original stone building. Um, this is an important criteria for this design. Then he also recognizes it's, it's downtown. It's right on a major uh, corner in downtown Los Angeles, crowded sidewalks, bustling. But he said, let's give a gift to the public. Let's create this courtyard off of the sidewalk, off of the stream of pedestrian traffic, but which will be uh, open, have air, have planting, um, and uh, have a little kind of uh, eddy of quieter public space right off of the bustling sidewalk. A very you know strong urban idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you because I want you to tell us who William Purr's landscape architect was, not just for Times Mirror Square, which we're talking about now, but also for LACMA and the NWD. And please remember that his grandson, Sean, is listening. <laughs> yes, uh, Pereira worked quite frequently with an archite- uh, landscape architect, Robert Herrick Carter. Quite a number of important leaders. The Avery headquarters in Pasadena, uh-huh. UC Irvine as well. Yeah. Carter was uh, involved with that. Uh, as well. So they worked closely together, and Robert Herrick Carter did the uh, landscaping elements for the uh, LA Times edition as well. And, and these were hanging gar- so the, this, this courtyard you've been talking about has, has walkways, second story walkways that yeah. puncture this negative space, and so these were really like hanging gardens of Babylon when yeah. they were properly installed. And you have, again, in this Southern California way, this interpenetration of indoors and outdoors, so that on the upper levels, the the workers inside can go outside onto this elevated balcony uh, walkway as well, uh, as well as at the ground level, uh, the the pedestrians have this space leading into uh, what is now a bank uh, as well, on the ground floor, as well as the building. So um, there were all of these parameters. I think Pereira address them very successfully. But there's also the question of the aesthetic of the building. Um, it is a, uh, a modern composition, uses modern materials, steel, glass, and stone. Very beautiful stone as well, as well as paving uh, elements as well. But it creates this kind of uh, interpenetrating uh, design of verticals and horizontals. The upper levels of the building are offices. They're raised up on these vertical stone-clad pylons as well, verticals that contrast with the horizontals of the upper floors, 
uh, and then you bring this down to lower and lower scales, smaller and smaller scales as well. So you have a very uh, complete and complex composition of vertical, horizontal forms, ornament, or not ornamented so much as uh, uh, highlighted by steel, glass, stone, right. paving elements. And just to call it out, the uh, stone treatment, these are four foot by six foot blocks of Swedish granite that have been flame treated. So this beautiful, they take, they take, they take a torch and they just, they just, they just cause the surface of the stone to scale from the heat. It's just beautiful, beautiful. Can't touch this stuff today. This is the, like un, unparalleled. And once again, you know, you, you see Pereira once again kind of reinventing the direction of modern architecture. Uh, with these forms and materials that he is using in this building. Now, it, this, as opposed to his CBS, which was the international style, um, uh, LACMA is um, a neoformalist design, if you want to put it into broad categories. This is a late modern design, still modern, still expressing its structure, using modern materials, but it is also, as it's more rich, complex composition that the international style, which is basically just boxes, uh, does not have. So he's making modernism uh, more interesting, palatable, intriguing for the, the, the later era. Perfect. Okay, so I think you did it. I think you did it. It's amazing. Um, Let's just let's just take a breath. This is going before the Cultural Heritage Commission. This entire landmarking application, which includes the Pereira uh, Times Mirror Company headquarters edition from 1973. I want you sitting in Irvine in 2018. I want you to tell people what's the most for you just sitting here in Irvine. But the most salient aspect of William Pereira's design legacy to Southern California is. You can you can take a second. It's okay. 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 William Pereira embodies this ongoing approach atmosphere of Southern California, away from the East and Europe not under the hand of, of convention or academic uh, 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 theory. In California, you know, the wonderful things about California architects is that they had the freedom out here to do wonderful things. And that includes, you know, people like Bernard Maybeck and Rudolf Schindler and Lloyd Wright and y you name it. This is where they could blossom. So there's this long tradition in Southern California, the atmosphere inspiring architects to new and wonderful solutions. Pereira is part of that. He just happens to be doing it at a particularly um, uh, important part in the history, economically in terms of growth, uh, etc., of California. So that's why he's important. In that very important uh, period in the second half of the 20th century, he uses that inventiveness that's part of California modernism and applied it in really, really brilliant ways. You did it. You did it.
Kim, did did we forget anything, darling? I know you're 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 paying it. You're 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 listening. Did we forget anything? Well, I think you're doing a wonderful job of advocacy, and you know everything smells great here, and we should probably go get a snack. Well, the I can the the sanjak is coming out of the oven right now, so we do have to go. So um, I want to encourage all of you to join us on July nineteenth. Um, Kim and Alan and I will be there along with. Leo and Nathan and Harry and many, many other people, and um, I'm looking forward to there being a second hearing. And I'm, I'm looking forward, I don't know if we can pull it off, but I'm looking forward to the, the tour of the site tour being open to the public so we can repeat what happened at the Metropolitan Water District. Okay, Alan, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. My name is Stephen Luftman. I'm here at Arto's Broadway Cafe, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Allison. Allison, I'm here with you. We're at Rancho Los Cerritos in Long Beach. I want you to properly introduce yourself, and then we have two other people here that we're gonna we're gonna get get come into focus, and then we're gonna come back just on you. Okay, so tell us who you are. I am Allison Bruzelhoff, the executive director of Rancho Los Cerritos. All right, and this is in uh, Bixby Knolls in Long Beach. We are in Bixby Knolls in Long Beach in a beautiful community right off San Antonio and Virginia. Perfect. Okay. Tessa, tell us who you are and your role here. Hi, my name is Tessa Cavanaugh, and I am the annual fund manager at Rancho Los Cerritos. It's my responsibility to raise support for our nonprofit foundation for operational and programming expenses. Perfect. Perfect. Sarah, let's come into focus with you. Who are you and what do you do here? My name is Sarah Fitzgerald. I'm the historical curator here at the Rancho Los Cerritos historic site, and I'm responsible for exhibits and also for managing our collections, and that includes our California Research Library, which is actually cataloged through the Long Beach Public Library System. It is a reference library, and I'm also responsible for managing our archive and artifact collections here at the site. Perfect. Okay. You three ladies are going to take us by the hand and lead us down the path. Allison, you're going to start. Okay, this is a really important 19th century adobe, which has undergone many iterations. We have a number of podcast interviews with Ellen from like seven, six to seven years ago. But all of that, go listen to them. Okay, we're not, we're, we're, we're looking ahead. So to look ahead in this podcast interview, we agreed you were going to bring us up to speed with the 26-year plan. Okay, so you're going to explain to us the 26-year plan, and then Tessa and Sarah are going to jump in and tell us about your next immediate goal and objective in that. So just over 26 years ago, um, my predecessor, Ellen, our curator, Steve, and some of the board members brought together a group of community members to discuss what the future of Rancho Los Cerritos would look like. What they ended up coming up with was a 26-year three-phase master plan. And what that plan would do is it would showcase the house as its 1930s era, but also talk about its earlier period. So being able to talk about the 1840s, the 1870s, the 1880s. One of the things they really wanted to do was to be able to utilize the entire site and not just the house. But the main goal of the master plan was to have the house open to the public in 26 years, 100% 
which is a pretty rare feat for an adobe in California, especially a Monterey two-story adobe. So 26 years ago, they put together a master plan. And believe it or not, here in 2018, we are completing phase two. So you only have one more phase to go. And with phase two, what we're doing is we're building a new caretaker's cottage because we consider our staff here the caretakers of the site. And that caretaker cottage will be our new administration offices. And what that enables to, us to do, and I'm going to turn it over to Sarah in a second and Tessa, is it enables us to open or to nearly double public access to the Adobe. Okay, perfect. Hold on. We're not done with you yet. You're going to take a breath and you're going to tell us the connection between Long Beach, the city, and the Bixby family who, who are intrinsically connected to this site. Just, just, oh, is that a Sarah? Okay, we're going to have Sarah do that. Okay. All right. Well, let's, okay. So, so, okay. So we're going to, okay. So hold the thought, master plan, phase two. Hold that thought. Tessa, you hold that thought. Sarah. I'm going to walk over to you, Sarah. All right, you're the, you're the archivist librarian here. Tell us about the Bixby's, who are intrinsically connected to the site, the city of Long Beach, and the narrative on this site before we get into phase two. Great. So Rancho Los Cerritos uh, served as, first it was a cattle ranch during the Mexican period, and then when it was part of the United States, it was operated as a sheep ranch. And the people who operated it were the Bixby family. Specifically, Jotham Bixby was part owner, and he lived on the site with his family, and he operated this sheep ranch. And this was during a time when Long Beach didn't even exist yet. So Rancho Los Cerritos predates Long Beach. Uh, so during the 1870s and 1880s, this was a sheep ranch. And then Jotham Bixby started selling off parcels of the ranch lands to become Long Beach, Bellflower, Paramount, and other surrounding cities in Long Beach. And so he's considered the father of Long Beach because of the fact that he uh, really you know, sold off parcels of land to become Long Beach, but also because he was a very influential philanthropist in the early years of the city. Perfect. And so when... Um Allison just talked about the different phases. The Bixby's really came in in the middle of this phase. In the, in the 1840s, this was um, the Bixby's weren't here yet. Correct. Yeah. yeah, the Bixby's didn't come to California until the 1860s. So 1866 is when they purchased Rancho Los Cerritos lands uh, from John Temple. Right, and just we're not going to dwell on this, but just it, we've done interviews with Alan in the past. That this is a really interesting question of how you interpret this site, and you have to pick one. And that decision, the master plan, the big decision was you're going to pick 1930, which is really the culmination of the Bixby's here when Llewellyn comes back and does this major remodel, and we get what we see now here. And I'm going to stop talking about that. Okay, so Tessa, mm -hmm. let's pop over to you. Sarah, we're going to come back to you. You're doing a good job. Tessa, let's pick up the thread that Allison dropped, didn't, left. You didn't drop anything. When we, 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 were, when we were talking to you, you were talking about phase two. Mm -hmm. So I want you to bring us up to speed on phase two and capital programs and looking ahead to the future of Rancho Los Cerritos. So to give this a little context for the development of the master plan, it's important to note that when it was developed, Rancho Los Cerritos was owned and operated by the city of Long Beach. So it was a city-supported um, 
you know, beautiful park with this wonderful historic adobe home that um, lived in a couple of different departments in the city throughout it, that iteration. And, and this is a city park that comes into creation about 1951, 50, 55. 55. So 1955, the city takes over this site. Right. And so um, it was part of the Long Beach Public Library system for a very long time. And then it was part of Parks and Rec. And about five years ago, the city still owns the land that is Rancho Los Cerritos. But the Rancho Los Cerritos Foundation took over operation of the site. So that shifts entirely how we support ourselves and sustain the rancho for the future. I'm going to interrupt you. What you've just described, that shift in ownership, stewardship, mm-hmm. this is a sea change. This is, this, is a, this is a non-trivial event in the history of the site. Kind of a big deal, Richard. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, so... So, um, I want you to set, set us up so we can come back into focus with Sarah. So, okay. tell us about the goal and objectives around um, the archive. Okay. The, 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 the capital goals and objectives around the archive, and then Sarah will fill us in on the, the, the nuts and bolts. Okay. So... Let's go. Let's go. Keep this rolling. (laughs) So since the foundation has taken over from the city, the city of Long Beach is still our closest partner um, as as we steward this site forward. But if we want to do additional projects, if we want to um, do these special restoration, opening new rooms, more than doubling, no, nearly doubling, stop nearly doubling, Um, public access to the site, we need to raise the funds from the community to do that. And we need to partner with our neighbors and our board and our volunteers. And thankfully, we have an incredible group of people who are very dedicated to the site. But as we move forward, we're going to be looking to grow that just as we're growing exhibit space in the Rancho. Okay, perfect. Okay, good. So, we then have a campaign that so set so set up this specific campaign and then we're just going to we're going to introduce Sarah. Okay. So now we're launching our opening doors campaign as we prepare to open new doors in the rancho and the first part of this project is our archives. Great. Okay. Sarah. We're standing just the other side of the door from the archives. It's a beautiful, great hall that Llewellyn Bixby remodeled and restored in the 1931. Uh, 30, Tell us about this room, what's in it, and, and what, what the goal is. So housed in what was part of that uh, restoration in 1930, 1931, uh, this was originally a living room. And for the past few decades, uh, our archival collection has been stored in there. And what's housed in our archival collection are primarily uh, maps, photographs, documents related to the Rancho Los Cerritos land, uh, but also to Long Beach and local regional history. And we also have books and artifacts stored in the space. Okay, great. And so the goal is... Allison, you mentioned the new the 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 caretakers building. This is going to open up office space. What's going to happen when this new office space that's being built 
opens up, what's going to happen to the archive in this really beautiful 1931 hall, which was modeled after an 1880s hall. People don't really have access to this space. And when the rare, lucky individuals do get to walk like, like, in... Like my wife right now. Yes. And what your wife said <laughs> is what people usually say. They walk in and they say, wow, what a beautiful room. What an incredible room. And so by moving archives into a separate wing in the house, uh, the wing that previously people's offices were in, those offices are moving into the cottage. And so by doing this musical chairs, moving those people out of their offices, moving our archival collection into uh, that wing of the house where our, where people's offices were, we can now open up this room and restore it to what it looked like after the 1931 remodel. And so it will be brought back to its previous historic glory as a living room. Perfect. You did it. Okay. Tessa, I'm going to come back to you. Okay. So this takes money. It takes capital. Give us the figures. Give us goals and objectives on the balance sheet. So the Opening Doors campaign is a $6 million campaign. It's a $6 million comprehensive campaign uh, taking place over the next three years that we are launching on June 14th as we unveil our plans to open these new rooms in the home Um and expand our educational programming. And we are looking to partner with our community members and asking for their support as we move forward so we can get these projects accomplished and open up this Adobe. Okay, good. All of you take a breath. We're almost there. Okay, so, so, so the goal is for people to donate. So I'm going to include a link on the page that this podcast is published mm -hmm. on. It's your website. There's a menu item, donate. Mm -hmm. I think it's rancholosceritos.org forward slash gift. Give. Give. Mm -hmm. Give. Cerritos forward slash give. So people should step up to the plate. This is a, this is a very important campaign. They can call you. Mm -hmm. They can call Allison mm -hmm. if, they're, if they're interested in doing some serious lifting. Yes, mm -hmm. good. All right, so good. You guys, you, you all did it. This is great. So let's, let's wrap this up. I'm going to step back over to Sarah. Sarah, is there anything you wanna you want us to leave with about about the archive, which is moving, or the room which Llewellyn restored that is about to be open to the public? Yes, I would just like to emphasize the fact that the archives are open to researchers, and so uh, this information has been accessible and it will continue to be accessible to the public. Uh, so if people are interested in researching and, and taking advantage of these wonderful archives, they are welcome to contact me. Um, and for the 1931 Living Room opening, it's really exciting. Uh, we are uh, taking great efforts, uh, thanks to uh, a really dedicated group of volunteers, to make sure that the room is historically accurate. So researching receipts of furniture of, of uh, you know furnishings and, and all the items that were in the room uh, and also working with um, uh, specialists and consultants on making sure that as we repaint and freshen up the paint that we're using the proper historic paint colors as we redo the floors making sure that we're using historic techniques so it's not just about remodeling and making the place look nice that's definitely a goal but it's also making sure that we are maintaining the historic integrity that we have done in the other rooms in the house. Excellent. And just as a as as the archivist, so in thirty years, if someone were to come here, they could pull the papers and look at all the, the inventory and the records for this restoration, I, I, I imagine. Absolutely. Great. So I, I I look forward to doing that when I turn 
79. <laughs> Tessa, we're going to, uh, you're, okay, so Sarah, thank you, thank you so much. Tell us, tell us your, your title again, because we're going to, we're going to start to wrap this up. I am the historic curator. Perfect. Thank you. Tessa, we're, we're going to start, okay, we're going to wrap this down. Tell us your title again, and let people know that they can reach out to you or to Allison if they want to talk about giving. My title is the annual fund manager and, uh, or Allison. What am I saying about Allison? No, no, she is. Just, yeah. Yeah, just tell us. So tell us your name and your title. Tessa Cavanaugh, annual fund manager, Tessa C. at RanchoLosCerritos.org. Excellent, Tessa. Thank you so much. You, you did a great job. Thank you. All right, Allison, here we go. Home stretch here. Um, I think we said it all, so why don't you just tell everyone listening goodbye and give them a closing thought to focus on about donations and this great campaign you're about to embark on. Thank you, Richard, for doing this. And again, my name's Allison Bruzahoff, Executive Director, Allison B. 1L at RanchoLosCerritos.org. And we just encourage everyone to come and visit, to yeah. see, to share the history that we're all so passionate about because if people understand their past, it really gears what's happening now and the future. So come visit and please donate. We can use any funds, small amounts to very large amounts are always welcome. But please help us open doors. Perfect. And we're going to air this uh, in, in mid-July. So this campaign will be at about a month old. So that'll be good. People sort of people will be getting getting on the bandwagon, not 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 getting on the horse for the first time. Allison, will you please to 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 send us on our way? Will you tell us about the Italian cypress, which I think is the second oldest second oldest tree in the county of Los Angeles? It's okay if if that's a if that's just a, I'm pretty sure, but it's a beautiful tree. It's a, it's this beautiful tree in 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 the garden here. I will tell you about the cypress, but I also am going to ask Sarah to jump oh, in if okay. I get something wrong okay. here. But when John Temple um, built the adobe here, he also planted three cypresses. So they would be kind of figures that you would see mm -hmm. so you knew where Rancho Los Cerritos was. As you came off the, free, the, the freeway in, in 1845. Um, and so we have one of those cypress trees still in its beautiful, rare beauty. And at this point, it's the second oldest tree in L.A. County. That's fantastic. I want to thank all of you, Allison, Tessa, Sarah. Thank you all, and um, everyone, come on down. Thank you. Thank you, Richard and Kim. My name is Bob Schuler. I'm in Irvine, California, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast. This month, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, July 2018. This month, our guests were architect and historian Alan Hess. He came to talk about the in-process application for landmark status for Times Mirror Square, the now former home of the Los Angeles Times from 1934 to 2018. Ow. Ow. Second guest, second interview in this episode are with three of the senior staff at Rancho Los Cerritos in Bixby Knoll, in the Bixby Knolls neighborhood of Long Beach. We talk with Executive Director Allison Brusahoff. We speak with Tess Cavanaugh. She's the Annual Funds Manager and Sarah Fitzgerald. She's the Historical 
curator of all the collections and artifacts, and it's just, they were here to talk about their Open Doors campaign, which is a fundraising campaign, three-year fundraising campaign, part of the 25-year plan, which they just conceived, which they just codified, and they're great, and it's one of my favorite places, and so I want to I thank you for having listened to that, and Kim, if people have feedback for us, what can they do? Well, so many things you can do to let us know what you think. You can send us an email at youcaneatthesunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at www.esoteric.com. You can get on one of our Esoteric Bus Adventures. We go out almost every Saturday, and we also do occasional forensic science seminars at Cal State LA. It's always nice to hear from our podcast listeners. You can also, if you're listening to the podcast through an app like iTunes, there's probably a place to review it, and if you do so... It'll help people who like similar podcasts find us. So we're always grateful for that. Let us hear from you. Great. Okay, Kim, we are in the home stretch. The paper is now in front of you. Yes, sir. We give bus tours. You're going to tell us about some uh, the next. Um, you're going to look well ahead into the deep fall, early, early winter 2018. Yeah, I'm putting my visor on for this one because I have to look into the sunrise. Well, we have the lowdown on downtown on August the 18th. That's a tour in the California Culture Series where we look at uh, the history of redevelopment. We'll talk about how the pain from Bunker Hill is still very, very sharp for people like our friend Gordon Patterson, which is, of course, the filter through which I look at what's happening down at Ports of Call. We'll also go into the Dutch Chocolate Shop, the Ernest Bichelder Tiled Interior. We are very grateful to be the only tour company able to visit that incredible city landmark, and uh, it is one of the most extraordinary sites in the world, not to mention downtown L.A. And the following Saturday, August 25th, also in the California Culture Series, we're looking at Boyle Heights and Monterey Park, a tour called, subtitled, The Hidden Histories of L.A.'s Melting Pot, a hundred years of immigration and cultural connection and blending with visits to some extraordinary small family-run businesses, historical sites, including the magnificent tiled Ellen Canto. Do we like tile? Yes, we do. Do we like California tile? And how? And uh, that tour also um, ends up have a tea tasting at Wing Hot Fung, but one of the last things we do is we go to Divine's Furniture, the oldest building, the, the oldest business in Monterey Park. And I've noticed on recent tours, very intrepid passengers come in, do a run of this fantastic antique shop, which is extremely affordable, and uh, they buy large things and put them under the bus, and I get an enormous kick out of that. So maybe you'll do that. Because, because they, they know that they can put it under the bus. Well, you tell them. Well, no, like, the last two people that bought things, like, they bought it and they, they were pushing it out. They were having Brian push it out on a cart. And they said, I can put this under the bus, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I like that people know we can just take care of them. And, uh, yeah, yeah, a very comfortable chair about last time. Then in September, September 8th, it's The Birth of Noir, James M. Cain's Southern California Nightmare. It's a, a rare tour that... Well, actually, not so rare, because we've got another one coming up. Uh, it bridges literary L.A. and cinema, which is wonderful. And um, on this tour, we'll go from Old Skid Row to Hollywood to Mildred Pierce's Glendale, visit some great film locations, and talk about how James M. Cain found his voice 
down with the working men of Old Skid Row and reinvented Pulp Fiction and the film noir genre. Then, on September 15th, it's uh, my crime bus tour, Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice. It's a downtown, I call it a double feature, but really it's a single bus tour. It's a mixture of visits to incredible, intact, uh, early 20th century and late 19th century hotel interiors, which there are fewer all the time, and some really grim and weird tales of entertainment and murder and psychosis down among the old boulevards of downtown L.A. And I've got some new material coming up from um, the historically black newspaper The Sentinel, which has covered one of my favorite serial killer cases in much more depth than the white press did. So you can look forward to that, Richard. It's, uh, It's a dark one. Then on September 22nd, we have a brand new tour with our dear friend, Detective Mike Digby, and it is a tour that comes out of his book about bombers and bombings in L.A., and it also branches off from our Weird West Adams tour. There's this case that we call the Crazy Caffets Clan, which is about real estate developers who get, oh, things go very, very wrong, and there's a femme fatale involved. And in Mike's case, he's looked very deeply into the femme fatale and the bombing spree that she initiated when she was written out of her much older husband's will. And so it'll actually be... Um, similar to his L.A. Times bombing tour that we did with him about a year ago, we'll be following in a early 20th century criminal investigation as it happened, using the tools and techniques of early policing and looking at it through a filter of 21st century policing because he's a bombing and arson expert. And I think you're going to learn a lot about old L.A., badly behaved women, and early crime investigation. So we're super excited about that, and everyone who gets on that bus gets a copy of Mike's brand new book about the case. So that's a deal. At the end of the month, September 29th, Eastside Babylon, my most unhinged crime bus tour featuring a lovely walk through Evergreen Cemetery to see the Carney graves, the uh, case of the of the Night Stalker being captured by the citizens on Hubbard Street, the um, radio shop murders, which is probably the darkest crime ever uh, explored on one of my crime bus tours, and a stop at the world's largest tamale. Then, on October 6th, it's Richard's Charles Bukowski's L.A. bus tour, a tour about finding the voice within yourself that is great, even if you're a 50-year-old postal worker, and that goes from downtown to East Hollywood. Echo Park Book of the Dead on October 13th is a crime bus tour about those lovely streetcar suburbs that hug the hills and all the terrible things that happen there. And we have a lovely little visit to Sister Amy Semple McPherson's House Museum on Echo Park as part of that one. Our Raymond Chandler tour in a lonely place comes around on October 20th. That is, of course, the sister tour to the birth of noir. So you can take one, you can take them both. You'll get a lovely view of noir Los Angeles as we follow Raymond Chandler, who is an alcoholic, failed um, oil executive who reinvents himself as a Pulp Fiction writer by using the tools and techniques that he obtained as a public schoolboy in England and how he becomes a screenwriter and is incredibly miserable but very successful. Our Halloween week tour on October 27th will be The Real Black Dahlia, our most popular tour, a tour that asks not who killed Beshort in 1947. It is still unsolved, but who was this drifter from Massachusetts and why should we care about her and what does her death 
and the investigation coming both from the police and the reporters at the time teach us about post-war Los Angeles. I think you'll find it's a lot. And we'll wrap it up. We are looking a long time in advance with a brand new, newly announced guest-hosted tour, Elmore Leonard in Hollywood. That'll be November 10th. It's a literary and cinematic bus tour hosted by Greg Sutter, who the New Yorker called Elmore Leonard's Legs. For 33 years, he was his researcher and assistant, and he went out and found the material that Elmore Dutch Leonard used for the books that he would write and the screenplays that he would write, and no one knows Elmore Leonard like Greg, and we're going to go and see Elmore Leonard's Hollywood through Greg's eyes. Very, very excited about this tour, and I think you'll enjoy it if you dig the work. If Get Shorty and Jackie Brown mean anything to you or you're an Elmore Leonard superfan, get on the bus. We'd love to see you there. Kim, thank you so much. I want to thank everyone at home for listening. I want to ask you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you... You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La, 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood called Hermina between Gold mine of fabulous oddities like root hairs, dairy, 